Section 8 of The Waning of the Middle Ages, A Study of the Forms of Life, Thought and Art in France and the Netherlands in the 14th and 15th centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Michelle Eaton. The Waning of the Middle Ages by Johann Hutzinger. Translated by Frederick Jan Hopman. Chapter 6 Orders of Chivalry and Vows. The ideal of courage, of honour, and of fidelity found other forms of expression besides those of the tournament. Apart from martial sport, the orders of chivalry opened an ample field where the taste for high aristocratic culture might expand. Like the tournaments and the accolade, the orders of chivalry have their roots in the sacred rites of a very remote past. Their religious origins are pagan. Only the feudal system of thought had Christianized them. Strictly speaking, the several orders of chivalry are only ramifications of the order of knighthood itself. For knighthood was a sacred brotherhood, into which admittance was effected by means of solemn rites of initiation. The more elaborate form of these rites shows a most curious blending of Christian and heathen elements. The shaving, the bath, and the vigil of arms undoubtedly go back to pre-Christian times. Those who had gone through these ceremonies were called knights of the bath, in distinction from those who were knighted by the simple accolade. The term afterwards gave rise to the legend of a special order of the bath, instituted by Henry the Fourth, and thus to the establishment of the real one by George the First. The first great orders, those of the Temple of St. John and of the Teutonic Knights, born of the mutual penetration of monastic and feudal ideas, early assumed the character of great political and economic institutions. Their aim was no longer in the first place the practice of chivalry. That element, as well as their spiritual aspirations, had been more or less effaced by their political and financial importance. It was in the orders of more recent origin that the primitive conception of a club, of a game, of an aristocratic federation reappeared. In the 14th and 15th centuries, the real importance of chivalrous orders, which were founded in great numbers, was very slight. But the aspirations professed in founding them were always those of the very highest ethical and political idealism. Philippe de Mezières, an unrivalled political dreamer, wishes to remedy all the evils of the century by a new order of chivalry, that of the passion, which is to unite Christendom in a common effort to expel the Turks. Burgesses and labourers are to find a place in it side by side with the nobles. The three monastic vows are to be modified for practical reasons. Instead of celibacy, he only requires conjugal fidelity. Mezières adds a fourth vow, unknown to preceding orders, that of individual moral perfection. Summa perfectio. He confided the task of propagating the militia passionis Jesu Christi to four Messages de Dieu et de la Chevalerie, among whom was the celebrated Arthur Grandson, 
who were to go to divers lands and kingdoms to preach and to announce the aforesaid holy chivalry like four evangelists the word order thus still preserved much of its spiritual meaning it alternates with religion which usually designated a monastic order we hear of the religion of the golden fleece of a knight of the religion of avis the rules of the golden fleece were conceived in a truly ecclesiastical spirit mass and obsequies occupy a large place in them the knights are seated in choir stalls like canons the membership of an order of chivalry constituted a sacred and exclusive tie the knights of the star of john the good are required to withdraw from every other order philip the good declines the honour of the garter in spite of the urgency of the duke of bedford in order not to tie himself too closely to england charles the bold on accepting it was accused by louis the eleventh of having broken the peace of perron which forbade alliance with england without the king's consent in spite of these serious airs the founders of new orders had to defend themselves from the reproach of pursuing merely a vain amusement the golden fleece says the poet michault was instituted non bon pour jeu ne pour esbattement mais à la fin que soit tribué l'oinge est dû très tout premièrement et au bon gloire et au terrenomie similarly guillaume philastre writes his book of the golden fleece to demonstrate the high interest and the sacred importance of the order that it might not be regarded as a work of vanity it was not superfluous to draw attention to the high objects of the duke so that his creation might be distinguished from the numerous orders of recent foundation there was not a prince or great noble who did not desire to have his own order orleans bourbon savoie hanaud bavière lusignan coursy all eagerly exerted themselves in inventing bizarre emblems and striking devices the chain of pierre de lusignan's sword order was made of gold s's which meant silence the porcupine of louis of orleans threatens burgundy with its spines which it shoots according to popular belief cominus et eminus if the golden fleece eclipsed all the other orders it is because the dukes of burgundy placed at its disposal the resources of their enormous wealth in their view the order was to serve as the symbol of their power the fleece was primarily that of colchis the fable of jason was familiar to all jason however was as an eponymous hero not absolutely irreproachable had he not broken his word there was an opening here for nasty allusions to the policy of the dukes towards france la ballade de forger of alain chartier is an instance adieu et aux gens d'estable et monterie et trahison pour ce n'est point mis à la table de preur l'image de jason qui pour emporter la toison de colcos se volpégerait la racine ne se pulsait it was therefore a very happy inspiration of the learned bishop of chalons chancellor of the order 
to substitute for the fleece of the ram that carried Helle another, far more venerable, namely that which Gideon spread to receive the dew of heaven. The fleece of Gideon was one of the most striking symbols of the Annunciation. Thus the Old Testament judge more or less eclipses the pagan hero as a patron of the order. Guillain Filastre, the successor of Jean Germain, as Chancellor of the Order, discovered four more fleeces in Scripture, each of them denoting a special virtue. But this was plainly overdoing it, and as far as we can see was not successful. Gedeonis Signa remained the most revered appellation of the Golden Fleece. To describe the solemn pomp of the Golden Fleece, or of the star, would only be adding new instances to the subject matter of a preceding chapter. Let it suffice here to point out a single trait common to all the orders of chivalry, in which the original character of a primitive and sacred game is particularly conspicuous, namely the technical appellations of their officials. The kings at arms are called Golden Fleece Garter. The heralds bear names of countries, Charolais, Zealand. The first of the pursuivants is called Fusil, after the duke's emblem, the flint and steel. The names of the other pursuivants are of a romantic or moral character, as Montreal, perseverance or allegorical, as humble request, sweet thought, lawful pursuit, designations borrowed from the Ramon of the Rose. At the feast of the order, the pursuivants are baptised in those names by sprinkling them with wine. Nicholas Upton, a herald of Humphrey of Gloucester, has described the ceremonial of such a baptism. The very essence of the conception of an order of chivalry appears in its knightly vows. Every order presupposes vows, but the chivalrous vow exists also outside the orders, under an individual and occasional form. Here the barbarous character, testifying that chivalry has its roots in primitive civilization, comes to the surface. We find parallels in the India of the Mahabharata in ancient Palestine and in the Iceland of the Sagas. What remained at the end of the Middle Ages of the cultural value of these chivalrous vows, we find them very near akin to purely religious vows, serving to accentuate or to fix a lofty moral aspiration. We also find them supplying romantic and erotic needs and degenerating into an amusement and a theme for raillery. It is not easy to determine accurately the degree of sincerity belonging to them. We should not judge them from the impression of silliness and untruthfulness which we derive from the Voix de Fazin, to mention the best known and most historical example. As in the case of tournaments and passages of arms, we only see the dead form of the thing. The cultural significance of the custom has disappeared with the passion animating those to whom these forms were the realisation of a dream of beauty. In the vows we find, once more, that mixture of asceticism and eroticism which we found underlying the idea of chivalry itself, and so clearly expressed in the tournaments. The Chevalier de Lettreau Landre, in his curious book of admonition to his daughters, 
speaks of a strange order of amorous men and women of noble birth which existed in poitou and elsewhere in his youth they called themselves galois and galoises and had very savage regulations in summer they dressed themselves in furs and fur-lined hoods and lighted a fire on the hearth whereas in winter they were only allowed to wear a simple coat without fur neither mantles nor hats nor gloves during the most severe cold they hid the hearth behind evergreen sprigs and had only very light bedclothes it is not surprising that a great many members died of cold the husband of a galoise receiving a galoise under his roof was bound under penalty of dishonouring himself to give up his house and his wife to him here is a very primitive trait which the author could hardly have invented although he may have exaggerated this strange aberration in which we divine a wish to exalt love by ascetic excitement the savage spirit of the vows of knights manifests itself very clearly in le voix de Heron, a poem of the fourteenth century of little historical value describing the feast given at the court of edward the third at the moment when robert d'artois urges the king to declare war on france the earl of salisbury is seated at the feet of his lady when called upon to formulate a vow he begs her to place a finger on his right eye two if necessary she replies and she closes his eye by placing two fingers on it belle is it well closed asked the knight yes certainly adon dis de la bouche de cuir le pensement et je vis et promets à dieu omnipotente et je vieux et promets à dieu omnipotente et à sa chemin que les boutres plantes qu'il n'est jamais ouvert pour oreille ne pour vent pour mal ne pour matière ne pour encombrement si serait de don franche où il est bon gens et si elle fut bout entièrement et serait combattu à grand efforcement contre les gens philippe qui tentent ardemment ou à vienne qu'à vienne car il n'est autrement à donnant ostas son doigt la pouchelle au cojon et l'exieux close de mieux si qu'esvirant l'agent the literary motif is not without a real foundation Croissard actually saw english gentlemen who had covered one eye with a piece of cloth to redeem a pledge to use only one eye till they should have achieved some deed of bravery in france the extreme of savagery is reached in the vow of the queen which ends the series in the vow of the heron she takes an oath not to give birth to the child of which she is pregnant before the king has taken her to the enemy's country and to kill herself with a big steel knife if the confinement announces itself too early i shall have lost my soul and the fruit will perish le voix de heron shows us the literary conception of these vows the barbarous and primitive character they had in the minds of that time their magical element betrays itself in the part which the hair and the beard play in them as in the case of benedict the thirteenth imprisoned at avignon who made the very archaic vow not to have his beard shaved before he recovered his liberty in making a vow 
people impose some privation upon themselves as to spur to the accomplishment of the actions they were pledged to perform most frequently the privation concerns food the first of the knights whom philippe de Mezières admitted to his chivalry of the passion was a pole who during nine years had only eaten and drunk standing bertrand de guisclin was dangerously prone to utter vows of this kind he will not undress till he has taken montcontour he will not eat till he has effected an encounter with the english it goes without saying that a nobleman of the fourteenth century understood nothing of the magical meaning implied in these fasts to us this original meaning is clear it is equally so in the custom of wearing foot-irons as signs of a vow as early as the eighteenth century la coeur de saint belay remarked that the usage of the chatty described by tacitus corresponded exactly with the fashion which mediaeval chivalry had preserved in fourteen fifteen jean de bourbon vowed and sixteen knights and squires with him that each sunday during two years they would wear on the left leg foot irons the knights of gold the squires of silver till they should find sixteen adversaries ready to fight them to the death the adventurous knight jean de boniface arriving at antwerp from sicily in fourteen forty five wears an emprise of the same sort so does sir loiselanche in le petit Jehan de centre the propensity to vow to perform something when in danger or in violent emotion undoubtedly always remains a powerful one it has very deep psychological roots and does not belong to any particular religion or civilization nevertheless as a form of chivalrous culture the vow was dying out at the end of the middle ages when at lille in fourteen fifty four philip the good preparing for his crusade crowns his extravagant feast by the celebrated vows of the pheasant it is like the last manifestation of a dying usage which has become a fantastic ornament after having been a very serious element of earlier civilization the old ritual such as chivalrous tradition and romance taught it is carefully observed the vows are taken at the banquet and the guests swear by the pheasant served up one bluffing the other just as the old norsemen vied with each other in foolhardy vows sworn in drunkenness by the boar served up there are pious vows made to god and to the holy virgin to the ladies and to the bird and others in which the deity is not mentioned they contain always the same privations of food or of comfort not to sleep in a bed on saturday not to take animal food on friday etc one act of asceticism is heaped upon another one nobleman promises to wear no armour to drink no wine one day in every week not to sleep in a bed not to sit down to meals to wear the hair shirt the method of accomplishing the vowed exploit is minutely specified and registered are we to take all this seriously the actors of the play pretend to do so in connection with the vow of philippe pot to fight with his right arm bare the duke as though he feared real danger for his favourite 
orders this addition to the registered promise it is not the pleasure of my very redoubted lord that monsieur philippe pot undertakes in his company the wholly votive journey with his arm bare but he desires that he shall travel with him well and sufficiently armed as beseems as regards the vow of the duke himself to fight the great turk with his own hand it provokes general emotion among the vows there are conditional ones betraying the intention of escaping in case of danger by a pretext there are those resembling a philippine and in fact this game still in fashion some forty years ago may be regarded as a pale survival of the chivalrous vow yet a vein of mocking pleasantry runs through the superficial pomp at the vow of the heron jean de beaumont takes an oath to serve the lord from whom he may expect the greatest liberality at those of the pheasant jeunet de rebreviettes swears that unless he wins the favour of his lady before the expedition he will marry on his return from the east the first lady or girl possessing twenty thousand gold pieces if she be willing yet this same rebreviettes in spite of his cynicism set out as a poor squire seeking adventures in the wars against the moors of granada thus a blasé aristocracy laughs at its own ideal after having adorned its dream of heroism with all the resources of fantasy art and wealth it bethinks itself that life is not so fine after all and smiles end of section eight